This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We're in essay number five. These are the last, uh, last, the fifth part of the Tanya. The fifth, uh, there are nine essays. We finished last time essay number four, which is the longest and most difficult and complex in the whole of the Tanya. This is really a continuation of the end of last essay. He described in last essay the importance of doing a mitzvah. That the purpose of the mitzvah is to elevate the sparks. We change the world, we refine the world, we make the world a better place through studying the Torah, doing the mitzvah, and not only doing the mitzvah, but studying the mitzvah, studying all the laws, all the details of all the laws of the mitzvah. And it's not only when we do an active mitzvah, we're engaging in the world and we're elevating the world, or we're studying the laws regarding those commandments, which are do's, but even when we're studying the laws of the prohibitions, what not to do. How are we elevating the world by not doing the mitzvah? By not doing anything? We're not engaging in the world. We're stepping away. We're not engaging in this activity. The Torah says it's prohibited. We don't do it. So how are you making the world a better place? Why not? So firstly, it says if a person is tempted to sin and he doesn't sin he withholds stops himself from sinning disciplines himself and doesn't sin it's as if he did a mitzvah and you can't do the mitzvah unless you study unless you learn and know all the laws clearly and all its details so by studying the halacha studying all the laws you know what not to do and therefore it's as if you've done it you know, say a thief who doesn't have the opportunity to steal thinks that he's honest. But when the Torah says don't steal, it means a person is tempted to steal, has the opportunity to steal, and thinks he can get away with it. But the Torah says don't. Hashem says no, and because Hashem says no, he restrains himself and doesn't. But the question is, that makes sense for those mitzvot that are practical you're tempted to do and because the Torah says don't do it you refrain from doing it. what about those mitzvot that are not practical like in this week's Torah portion there's one opinion in the Talmud that says the whole Ben Sora Mora the addicted child talk about addiction the addicted child the rebellious child who's put to death the chances of that happening one Talmud, one Talmud says never happened it's only between the age of, it has to be 13 until 13 and a half. And he has to steal and he has to eat a certain amount and drink a certain amount. And he has to be warned. And his father and his mother. I mean, there's so many details that are involved. The chances of this happening never happen. 
one opinion says that the Irani Dachas, that the majority of the city worshipped idols and, and, they were, and the city was destroyed and they were all killed. This is so rare, it never happened. Not only rear, it never happened. And many other things in the Torah which is like so far-fetched. So what's the purpose of studying these mitzvot? I'm not studying about anything practical, anything that's relevant. That's, when I study, don't steal, it's practical. It teaches me how to behave, what not to do, what yes to do. But I'm learning about things that are so far-fetched that will never happen. So yes, the Talmud says that a Jew studies Torah even though it's not relevant. Not only do I study Torah because of its practicality, I study Torah for the sake of studying Torah. Which is why the average Jew spends so much time studying the laws of Nizikin, studying the laws of Baba Kama, Baba Metzia, Baba Basra. I'm not planning to be a judge. The rest of the world, who studies law? Who spends hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years of their life studying law? If you're a lawyer, plan to be a lawyer, plan to become a judge. When was the last time a person who's not a lawyer, not a judge, never planning to become a lawyer, will spend half of his life studying law? Morning and night. Intricacies of law and the nitty-gritty. And yet every Jew, every Jewish adult studies law. Talmud. But we study Torah for the sake of studying Torah, not just in order to know practically, in order to know what to do. There's an idea of studying Torah. But here the Alter Rebbe is addressing, we just learned earlier that the main purpose, the main accomplishment that we achieve by studying Torah is that we make the world a better place. We change the world. We affect the world. We're trutikunola. We're changing the world. But how do you change the world by learning, and in great detail, things that never happen and probably never will happen? Probably can't happen. Theoretically, theoretical situation. Why am I engaging? How has that changed the world? And you can't say, well, if you study it, it's as if, as if you've done it. If you're tempted to do it and you don't do it, I'm not tempted to, it'll never come up. It's not practical. These are situations that will never present themselves. Not in my lifetime, not in anyone's lifetime. And yet I'm studying and I'm engaged in the nitty-gritty and all the details and the nuances and the Talmud spends pages discussing this, that, or the other. Completely irrelevant. Not relevant to real life. How is studying those laws, how does that affect the world so much so that it takes precedence over meditation and, and spirituality, focusing on my spirituality, no, you have to go through the whole entire Torah and you have to learn all the 613 mitzvot and all the laws and in great detail. Why am I spending so much time and effort and energy in studying things that are completely impractical, irrelevant? That will, how does that affect the world? How is that changing the world and affecting the world and impacting the world? That's the question that he's posing. He starts, Ullah let us understand. Let us understand how this leads to the details of the laws that never occur at all, and possibly never actually existed, and certainly will not come to pass in the time. Not only don't they exist today, surely they won't exist when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, the world will be pure, the world will have clarity, truth will be self-evident, will become transparent. 
negativity, prohibitions, that it won't even be a possibility. So if today it's unlikely for these negative scenarios to pan out, how much more so Mashiach will come, surely it'll never happen. And yet, we say that studying that is primary and takes, and takes uh, precedence over even over focusing on your spirituality and meditation because you're studying Torah, you're changing the world, you're affecting the world, you're making the world a godly place. How? And he brings an example, for example. The detailed laws of... Pigul and the like. Pigul is, the Torah says, that the Kohen who's offering a carbon, a sacrifice, his intentions are very critical. If he has a wrong intention, but Pigol is a very specific wrong intention. Like he slaughters the animal and he has a mind that he's going to eat the animal at the wrong time. It already gives a very narrow window when you have to eat the leftovers of the animal. Or um, a very narrow window when you have to offer the leftovers of the animal, you have to offer on the altar. So if he has a mind that I'm going to bring, I'm going to offer these offerings in the wrong time after its expiration date, or I'm going to eat it after expiration date. You invalidate the sacrifice. That thought invalidates the sacrifice. And if you eat, once that sacrifice is invalidated, if you go ahead and eat from that sacrifice, your life is cut off. Punished by death from above. Your life is cut off. So what are the chances? If you know all the laws of Pigel, the Kohen has to have very specific intent. And he has to only think about Pigel. If he thinks anything else, if he thinks a kosher intention together with a non-kosher intention is not a problem. It's only exclusively a, non, a non-appropriate intention. A Kohen is standing in the temple. He, he's a spiritual leader. He's, he's there to offer a sacrifice. What are the chances of him he's going to have a negative, a wrong intention? It's, it's very far-fetched. To meet all the requirements for it to be considered pigol is a very, very far-fetched scenario. And yet we spend pages and pages in Lord, the Talmud, page after page after page, discussing the details about something that, pro- that probably never ever happened in the history of the temples. Probably never happened. Why? It's a good question. It's just an example. There are many, many, just an example, many, many things in the Torah that it seems so far-fetched. And how do you say that by studying these laws, I'm improving the world, I'm changing the world? How? So that's the question. It's known that every prohibited thing in the world has a source and a root of life in the Klippo. Otherwise, it could not exist in this world without the flow from above i.e. without receiving vitality from the spiritual source. Everything that exists in this world, in the physical world, has a spiritual source. What we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. What we can observe, what's tangible, is literally the tip of the iceberg. It's a manifestation of a spiritual energy. Ultimately, everything is godly. But there is where godliness is manifest in an open way. And that's what we call holiness, the palaces of holiness, where godliness is 
channeled and revealed in an open way. And then you have where godliness becomes distorted, where the energy becomes disconnected from its source. And you don't sense Hashem. You sense an energy, a life, but you don't sense Hashem. It becomes disconnected. That's the palace of Kalipa. So everything that's in this world is a manifestation of something spiritual. So therefore, the practical expressions are very limited. But there are many more possible scenarios which may never come to be practically. But it's a possibility. It's a scenario. Where does this possibility even, even come from? The thought of this possibility, the idea, the concept that there, there is a possibility for this to happen, even though practically it never happened, it never will happen. But even the possibility of this happening has a source. It doesn't just come from nowhere. Nothing in this world comes from nowhere. So the possibility of this scenario happening comes from the source of Klippa, the negative source, the negative energy. So even though it's not manifest practically, it'll never happen practically, it never happened, never will happen, but it doesn't matter. There is an energy, a negative energy, which is the source of all these different possible scenarios, prohibitions that the Torah discusses in great detail. If this and this happens, and this and this may happen, and this and that, even though practically it never happened, and it probably never happened, the chances of it happening are so limited, next to, zil, next to uh, zero, are nil, but the idea that it could happen, and there is a possibility for it to happen, that idea comes from the klippa, comes from, the, from the, the palace of the klippa, the energy of the klippa, of the shell, of the negative energy. So basically, when a Jew studies Torah, even when you study those parts of the Torah that are not relevant, not practical, you are clarifying the klippa, the source of all the negativity in this world. All the negativity in the world has a source, a spiritual source, an energy, a force, a life force. A life force for negativity. Just like we have positive angels, you have the opposite. You have negative angels, which are powerhouses, which are sources of power and energy. That's one of the reasons why the Torah speaks so much the non-Jews would worship demons and offer sacrifices to demons. They were trying to tap in to those dark energies, those dark forces, those negative energies, which transcend the physical world. They were tapping into these reservoirs and they felt these spirit empowered by these spiritual powers, negative powers, negative energy. And that's why the Torah discusses magic and other things. They, they were... In those days, they were able to tap into those negative energies. Idolatry. Tapping into all these negative forces. So here, when the Jew studies Torah and you're studying the laws that are not practical, you're addressing the source. What you're addressing is the source where all negativity comes from. At the root. In the spiritual realm. And by studying Torah, and clarifying, bringing clarity. This is kosher, this is not kosher. This is good, this is not good. This is truth, this is false, this is good, this is evil. Obligated, not obligated, guilty, not guilty. Pure, impure. 
making all these distinctions and clarifying, you are changing and clarifying and affecting and fixing the negativity at the root and at the source. That's the power of your Torah. So we are addressing the negativity. We're addressing the source of negativity, which has a direct impact on this world. Because when you, we fix it in the source, it will trickle down and will affect that the neg- negative energy in this world, it diminishes the negative energy in this world. So it's true what we say that when we study Torah, we are fixing the world and we're amending the world. And that's why we have to engage our whole life. We have to study the halacha, all the 613 mitzvahs, all the mitzvahs, even the prohibitions, even those things that are so far-fetched that will never happen. And study it in great detail. Because by clarifying and studying all these laws, you're clarifying it at the source. You're affecting change. You're accomplishing something tremendous. Even one who crinkles his hair and the like receives his life force at the moment from the spiritual chain of the poet as explained in the Zohar. As it's mentioned even in the Talmud, that Joseph, Yosef HaTzadik, he was gorgeous, he was handsome. The women in Egypt went wild over him. Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him. And he was vain. He, he made up his hair. Joseph knew he was very handsome and he combed his hair, made up his hair. What's wrong with <laughs> combing your hair and making your hair, looking in the mirror and making sure that you're, you look great? Vanity. There's no, there's no prohibition. Don't say anywhere in the Torah you're not allowed to comb your hair or look in the mirror. But it wasn't a godly activity. He wasn't doing it for Hashem. It was vanity. You know, I look good. I want, I want other people to like me. I want the girls to like me. Um, I want to look sharp and spiffy. And, um, so it's not Hashem. I'm not thinking about, I wasn't thinking about Hashem at that moment. I'm thinking about myself. Ego, vanity. So if it's ego and vanity, it's a negative energy. It's not Hashem. It's not holy. It's not godly. It's not... So at that moment, where do you get your life force? You're tapping into the life force of negativity, the opposite of holiness. You're not getting your life force from holiness when you're thinking about Hashem and whatever you're doing is Hashem. When you're eating, you're thinking about Hashem. When you're sleeping, you're thinking about Hashem. Whatever you're doing, all your activities, you inject Hashem into the picture. I do it for the sake of heaven. I'm thinking about Hashem. Then everything you do becomes a holy activity. So your whole life force is drawn from holiness but with the moment you stop thinking about Hashem you're not doing anything negative I didn't do anything I'm not doing anything evil I didn't do anything immoral I'm not killing anyone I'm not stealing I'm not cheating I'm combing my hair I'm playing around with my hair <laughs> but you're not thinking about Hashem you think about vanity how do I look how do people see me my impression you're thinking about yourself at that moment, where are you drawing your energy from? You're drawing your energy from the negative, from the klipa, from the distorted, like a distorted light, the distorted light. Everything comes from Hashem. But through the klipa, it gets distorted and it gets disconnected. So therefore, everything in this world has a source. Nothing could exist on its own. So therefore, even the, he's going to say, even the impossible scenarios, but if it's a scenario that we can imagine, if it's a possible scenario that could happen, theoretically, even though it never happened and will never happen, but even that 
has a source, comes from this negative, negative source. But, um, you know, when you talk about crinkling your hair, that's an extreme case. I mean, if we're going to work, and we want to comb our hair. No, but again, again, that you're doing, again, that could be for the sake of heaven. You're doing it because you have to be presentable. And, but again, you're thinking about, why am I going to work? I'm going to work, I should make a living, I should be able to, uh, to take care of my family, I should be able, you know, to be a Jew is very expensive. <laughs> Not cheap, especially here on the Upper East Side. So you got to, of course, of course. But again, if Hashem is part of the picture, it's not a problem. The problem is when it's not for Hashem. You're doing it for vanity. Vanity. Nothing to do with Hashem. I don't look handsome. I don't look... Uh, you're not thinking about Hashem. If, if, yeah. But vanity does exist. Yeah. But, yeah. Like there are many things that exist, but it depends, <laughs> depends what you do with it. Cravings exist. Vanity exists. Lust exists in many things, but it depends how you deal with it, what you do with it. You don't have to indulge in it. Not everything, not everything that's there has to be indulged. Not every craving has to be indulged, not everything. But if you inject Hashem in the picture, it's not a problem. The problem is when it becomes self-serving, egotistical. So Hashem is out of the picture, then it becomes a negative, a negative energy. Therefore, even the particular prohibitions that never became practical issues in this physical world, still the roots of their life force do actually exist in the spiritual chambers of the people. Even the particular instances that possibly never did and never will actually occur, for example, hours and unwitting misdeeds, like when tithing, erroneously calling the ninth sheep the tenth. It's a very uh, interesting halacha. The laws of tithing the animals, which the rabbis say we don't do today, unlike the firstborn, the firstborn animal is automatically holy. You have to give it to the Kohen. So even today, it's born holy. The tithing of the animals doesn't become holy until you tithe, until you, the owner, takes an action. What's the action that you take? You enter all your animals... Into the, into the barn and then you call them out one by one and you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine when the tenth animal goes out or they go out in pairs when the tenth pair goes out you, you, uh, you mark them with a red, uh, red string they're red, you know, they're holy and you have to offer them as a sacrifice in the temple what if by mistake you know, they say there's, by mistake, you call the ninth animal, you call the tenth animal. One, two, three, four, five, six, eight, and the ninth animal walks out, number ten. They say there are three types of people, those who know how to count and those who don't. So the, the ninth, you call the tenth. And then the tenth comes out. And it doesn't matter. The tenth, you call the ninth. You got submission. The ninth, you call the tenth. The tenth animal you call the ninth. And since you call the tenth animal the ninth, when the eleventh animal walks out, you call it the tenth. So the law states, we learn from Moshe, the law states that all three are tithed animals. Usually there's only one out of ten. The tenth is the tithed animal. And it becomes holy and you have to offer it as a sacrifice in the temple. Here, because of your mistake, 
because you called the ninth, the tenth, and the eleventh you called the tenth, and the tenth it doesn't matter you called it the ninth, but it's the tenth. So all three become sacred animals. You have to offer them in the temple. You can't you can't redeem it. You have to offer it in the temple. This only works if it's the ninth and the eleventh. If you're so bad at math that you call the eighth the tenth. <laughs> Or you call the twelfth the tenth, that doesn't matter, it's too far away. But if it's the ninth and the and the and the eleventh, then so again, what are the chances of this happening? I mean, who in his right mind is calling the ninth the tenth, the tenth the ninth, and the eleventh the tenth, all together at the same time? This is one scenario. The ninth animal walks out, you call it the tenth, and you mark it. The tenth animal walks out, you call it the ninth. And, and then the 11th animal walks out and you call it the 10th. It's it probably maybe never happened. It probably never will happen. Even the biggest dunce probably won't make such a mistake. And yet we're studying this halacha. It's halacha and we're studying it. It's in the gemara and the, the halacha. Why, what am I studying? What am I spending my time studying things that are so far-fetched? Will never happen. Could never happen. What's the point? What am I accomplishing? What am I doing? And here, the problem is another problem. Here, we have a much deeper problem than the one we discussed till now. Because here, the Alter Rebbe is going to say, all the other things, the prohibitions that we said never happened and could never happen are far-fetched, are just hypothetical scenarios. Here, we said that the source comes from the klipa, from the negative. There is a spiritual source. And at the source, all these scenarios exist even though practically it never can happen because it's too narrow for it to happen the possibilities but theoretically it could happen so it comes from a negative source and therefore we have to study Torah to fix that negativity to address it at the source and to fix that negativity to clarify and to reject and to to clarify what's right, what's wrong but in this case you can't say that because in the case of the, the tithing, the ninth and the tenth and the eleventh, this law only works if it's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's not intentional. It was a mistake. His mind is not thinking. The ninth becomes the tenth, and the tenth becomes the ninth, and the eleventh becomes the tenth. He just counted the tenth. He just counted the tenth once already. He already had the tenth, and now he has a third tenth. I mean, this is, this is so, so confused and discombobulated. Obviously, it's a mistake. If he does it intentionally, it's meaningless. If a person intentionally calls the ninth to tenth, it's meaningless. All, the law is only operative if it was a mistake. An innocent mistake. So how can you call it negative? What's negative? It was a mistake. Yes, we have the idea that all mitzvot, if you do a, 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 a sin unintentionally, you have to bring a sacrifice. So... so Mistakes are negative. You have to bring an atonement. But there, you have the possibility of doing the sin intentionally. <laughs> it happened to be that you did the sin unintentionally. In that case, you need an atonement. It's, it's negative, And you have to bring a sacrifice. But in this case, there's no scenario of intentionality. If it's intentional, this law doesn't work. The, this law only applies when and if it's unintentional. And when and if it's unintentional, how can you call it evil, negative? It's a mistake. You can call him a dunce, you can call him any, any word in the book, but not evil or negative. You say, yeah. 
So the question remains in this case, what possible positive outcome can come from learning these laws? How am I fixing this world? You can't tell me I'm fixing it at the root, at the source, the source of negativity, the spiritual source of negativity. There's no spiritual source for this negativity. There's nothing wrong. It's a mistake. That's what he's going to address now. Kind of eventuality that cannot be deliberate and thereby cause a creepa to light upon it, possibly in these circumstances it does not exist in, in the chambers of creepa. How then does it possess a source and root in the creepa? That's his question. So what am I accomplishing by learning these type of laws? Alter Rebbe says possibly. He doesn't say definitely, even though it sounds definite. Why does he say possibly? So Motzedek explains, he's going to explain, we're going to read in a moment, because there is a difference between unintentional sin and, and, and an accident, right? In legal law, you have premeditated murder, you have unintentional murder, it was an accident. Negligence. But negligence is not an accident. Negligence is not the same as accidental. Negligence is I'm driving and I hit someone. Accidental is I'm driving and someone runs out in the street in front of me. I, I, I'm not negligent. Like I, I can't protect myself from that. If, if a madman wants to commit suicide and he runs in front of my car, that's not negligence. It's an accident. It's not something I can anticipate. But if you run, if you run someone over, you were negligent. You're not, you didn't do it intentionally. It was a mistake. But if you were more careful, it wouldn't have happened. So th- there's a clear distinction between an accident. If someone does an accident, he doesn't have to bring a sacrifice. It's not unintentional. It's not my fault. I had nothing to do with it. But unintentional negligence is not, you're not exactly guilt-free. You're not totally guilt-free. Well, negligence implies a contribution to what happens. Exactly. You're not totally guilt-free. When a person does a sin unintentionally, there's something wrong with the person. Because if you were alert, if you were sharp, if you were on the ball, if you really were careful, if you really cared enough about it, it wouldn't have happened. You notice that even drunk people or causing damage to everyone around them, but when they go down the steps, they hold on to the rail. They manage not to tumble down the steps. When you care about yourself, suddenly there's no excuses. You're not there. Suddenly you make sure to take care of yourself. When was the last time you rolled, you rolled off your bed in the middle of the night? When you take care of yourself, there's no... You manage to take care of yourself. When you care about something, even unintentional things, bad things don't happen. If you're sharp, if you care, the problem is you don't really care. You don't really want to do it. You have no choice. I'm not into it. My heart is not into it. So the moment, oh, it's unintentional. It wasn't my fault. What can I do? Something is wrong with the person. The person is not, he's not on the ball. He's uh, He's not the way he should be. If he was the way he should be, that's why he says a tzaddik, Hashem will not allow a tzaddik, something negative to happen to a tzaddik. Because if a person is the way he should be, it's not even possible. Even an animal doesn't jump into fire and hurt themselves, you know, unintentionally. You, 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 you're alert. When you're alert, 
It doesn't happen. Negative things don't happen. And you're not alert. You're half asleep. You prefer to be that way because I don't really care about it. I'm just, I feel I'm forced to do the right thing. But my heart is not into it. All of a sudden, well, many unintentional things <laughs> happen and slip through the cracks and fall through the cracks. And so a person is not totally innocent. That's why the Alter Rebbe says, maybe. That's what sometimes I'm going to explain. Yes, this whole scenario of this tithing could only happen if it's unintentional. But you can't say he's totally guilt-free. He's not a tzaddik. He's not an innocent. So therefore, you could say that he's gaining. At that moment, he's getting energy, not from klipa, the totally negative energy, but he's getting his energy from klipat noga, which is like, not here and not there, pariv, like in between. I'm not, ko- not, kosher, not, not milchik, not flejik, not kosher, not, not kosher. It's not a mitzvah, it's not a sin. It's somewhere in like a twilight zone, somewhere in between. So he is at that moment maybe receiving his energy from that level of klipa. So therefore, we can understand then why it's important to study these laws, to clarify and to fix it and to mend it at the source which is the palace of Klippat Noga. That's what Alter Rebbe says, maybe. He doesn't say it as definite. He says, maybe you can say that no, since it's only an accident, since it's only a mistake, there's absolutely no source. There's no source for this. There's no negative source for this. Which begs the question then, why am I spending so much time studying laws that are completely impractical, completely irrelevant, that have no source in negativity? I'm not fixing anything in this world. I'm not fixing anything in the, in the spiritual source. And in the, so what am I doing? What am I accomplishing by studying all these laws? That's the question that, that he poses now. Note inserted by a Tzemach Tzedek of blessed memory. It appears to me that Alter Rebbe use the word possibly implying uncertainty because unwitting errors derive from noga. It may therefore be said that their origin is in the chambers of noga. That's just a note, but Alter Rebbe said that perhaps there is no negative source, so spe- which begs the question, and why are we studying all these laws? And now comes the answer, in any event, in any event, it does exist, if not in Klipot, at least keeping in mind the distinction between the sacred and the profane, in the supreme wisdom that issued a descendant in this detail to Moses at Sinai. So he says every single law, every single detail in the Torah, all these laws and these intricacies and the the way it's spelled out and hundreds and thousands of details and nuances, this scenario, that scenario, the other scenario. I mean, take any halacha and there are books and books and books and each law and so many scenarios and possibilities. The chances of it happening may be close to nil. And yet... All these variations and all these nuances and all these details originate from Hashem's wisdom. The source of Torah, divine wisdom, supernal wisdom. Hashem thought of all these different possibilities. That's the Torah. In studying cases of things that actually happen, we don't ever study cases of that is the difference. Correct. Because... When we are studying Torah, we are studying, first and foremost, 
And this is why this is so primary to us. We're studying first and foremost the divine mind. And that's why Hashem gave us many mitzvot that are not practical and not relevant. To remind us that the primary studying of Torah is not only to know what to do because of its practical relevance. The primary essence of studying of Torah is because we're studying the divine mind. And Hashem's mind is, Hashem is infinite, His mind is infinite. And therefore, we have discussions of scenarios and, and instances that are so far-fetched that never happened, never will happen. It's not relevant. It's not. We study it with zest and enthusiasm because mm-hmm. the primary purpose of studying Torah because we are studying the same thing that Hashem is studying. Hashem is studying Torah. This is His mind. This is his. Hashem is engaged in the study of Torah. Before the world was created, this is Hashem's, Hashem and the Torah. Nothing else before anything else exists, nothing else exists. This is what engages Hashem. And Hashem is sharing with us His thought, His thought process, and His thinking. And Hashem is in. To uh, expand our mind. To well, well, no. He's going to explain that this does affect the world. We're going to get there. How ultimately, by studying, studying the divine wisdom and studying all the details and all the nuances which all derives from Hashem, this does affect the world. And now he's going to lay it all out. He's going to spell it all out. I could just say, you, yeah. know, you know, it reminds me of taking calculus or math. You know, Theoretical math. math. Right. I mean, you're studying this, studying this, but uh, what does it do? How does it pay my bills? <laughs> other than expanding my mind, you know, and to break through and understand that you can say that you're studying theoretical to understand the concept. So all these different scenarios help you understand, clarify an idea, concept. But here, the whole theme of this uh, essay is that the Torah does have an impact on this world. It's not just theoretical. That we know, the Talmud says, Study Torah just for the sake of studying Torah, not because it's practical and relevant. But here we're saying that everything in the Torah has a practical impact. Not only that everything in the Torah teaches us a lesson in life that we learn many times, everything in Torah, but also practically it affects this world. And that's the question. How do these laws affect the world when it's, it's not practical? It never happened, never will happen. That's what he's going to explain. So he's starting out here because we're studying the wisdom, and then he's going to lead how that impacts the world and that affects the world. As in the expression, whatever teaching any seasoned student will one day innovate was taught to Moses at Sinai. So everything originates from Sinai. Every single day, till today. The Torah is being developed until today, the oral Torah. It's like infinite. It's being developed until today. The books that are published, I mean, there are millions of Jewish books that are published and developing and continue to develop and spell out and, and apply the Torah to all the different scenarios. 
everything was given to Moshe at Sinai. It all originated in that divine, supernal wisdom that God revealed to Moshe, spoke to Moshe. Likewise, all the detailed queries Rabbi Yirmiyah, who posed so many hypothetical possibilities that he was escorted from the house of study, as the Gomorrah relates, obviously his queries involved situations that were entirely unlikely to ever take place. Yeah, Rabbi Yirmiyah would ask a lot, a lot of questions. And at one point, the rabbis threw him out, expelled him. Kids today get expelled from school for other reasons. He got expelled because he was asking too many questions. For example, the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the Talmud says in the tractate of Baba Basra, that, um, page 23, I believe, that uh, he, the mission says, that if a chicken, you find a chicken away from its coop, so if it's within 50 cubits, around 75 feet or so, a little more than 75 feet, next to, the cu- next to its coop, then it belongs to the owner. We assume it belongs to the, to the coop. It's coming from the coop. If, however, it's past 50, uh, 50 cubits, past 75 feet, 75, 80 feet, then whoever finds it, it's finders keepers because it has no owner. It came, from, it came from anywhere. It didn't come from the coop. It could have come from, from the streets, from elsewhere. So it's, uh, it's ownerless. So whoever grabs it, it belongs to them. And the Talmud concludes it's talking about a case. We're not talking about a case of a chicken that flies. A chicken that flies, it can come from anywhere. So we're talking about a chicken that's too young. It can't fly yet. It just hops. Chickens fly? Sure. You never saw a chicken fly? You ask a city, only a city person could ask such a question. They fly a little. They fly a little. Enough. Enough. Enough to, to get around. <laughs> but if, if it's too little yet, it can't fly, it just hops. So it won't hop more than 50 cubits. So if it's within 50 cubits, surely it didn't come from, from elsewhere, it came from the closest coop. From the coop. So it belongs to the owner, you have to return it to the owner. So Rabbi Yirmi asked the question. He says, What if one leg was within the 50 cubits and the other leg was outside the 50 cubits? He was right down the middle, one leg here, one leg here, what do we do? Do you send them back to the owner, to the coop, or whoever, finders, keepers? The rabbi said, Okay, enough. <laughs> Threw him out. <laughs> But well, Rashi says, because he was, I mean, he was like asking, he was nudging them too much and also asking about things that have never happened. What are you, what are you asking questions? What are the possibilities of this happening? Taisu says, no. Taisu says that the reason they threw him out wasn't because he was asking a hypothetical question that's so far-fetched that will never happen, will never happen, never will happen. What are the chances of a chicken being one, one leg standing here, one leg standing? But because it's not a question. When the rabbis say 50 cubits, it's 50 cubits and not an inch more. So if the leg is outside the 50, then, then it's finders keepers. What are you asking questions? The rabbi said 50, it's 50. The, the, don't, uh, oh, but maybe it's a little more. No, the rabbi didn't say 50 and a little. He said 50. 50 means 50. What part of 50 didn't you understand? <laughs> so they, 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 the fact that he questioned the rabbis, says maybe it's 50 exactly, maybe it's a little more or less. So that's why they threw him out. But whatever, however... He's bringing an example of 
that they threw him out because he's acting impractical, but he asked all these questions, impractical questions that are so far-fetched. And yet the Talmud is filled with many questions that Rabbi Yirmiya asked, which are like far-fetched. For example, another question that, that Rabbi Yirmiya raised in Chulin. And detailed queries such as, quote, if she wrapped him, in quote, in chapter 4 of Chulin. So the Gemara there discusses the firstborn of the animal is holy, and you have to give it to the Kohen. The question is, because the Torah says Peter Rechem, not if it's a C-section, it has to come out of the womb. So it has to touch the womb, it has to come directly out of the womb. So Rabbi Yirmi asked the question, what happens if the one who's giving birth, the owners helping the animal give birth, wraps their hands around the newborn calf, let's say, so the newborn calf never touched the womb. He was enveloped in, 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 in these hands, in these arms, so he never touched the womb. Or Rabbein Tam says it's talking about with the firstborn, the older one is the, is the male, but he also has a twin sister, so the younger. And let's say the twin sister, the, the, the male was wrapped within the twin sister. So the twin sister touched the womb. And the male never touched the womb. So do we say in such a case that it's a holy animal, you have to give it to the Kohen, and maybe since it never touched the womb, just like a C-section, it never touched the womb, you don't have to give it to the Kohen, it's not holy. Again, what are the chances of this happening? Of the male being wrapped <laughs> in a twin sister that's younger and, and, and it doesn't, doesn't touch the, its mother's womb? Or, the, or the, the one helping the animal, holding the owner, holding it with his hands and not letting the animal touch the womb. I mean, these are scenarios that probably never happen, probably never will happen. And Rabbi Yirmi is discussing. We have to know the law. We have to know what the Torah says. What is the truth? What is the law state? And it's a whole discussion. How can an animal not touch the womb if the animal is being born? Yeah. So he's giving a scenario. While he's giving born... It has to touch the womb when it comes out. Of course, it's, it's, it's in the womb. Yes. But it has to touch the womb when it comes out. That's why if it's a C-section, it's not a B'chor. It has to touch, if you cut it, it has to touch the, it has to touch the, has to go through the canal naturally. So if it's coming out, it's not touching, because you wrapped your hands around it. So then maybe it's exempt from the status of being a firstborn. It doesn't have that holiness. You don't have to give it to the priest. You know. That's the question that the Talmud discusses. But again, why are we discussing things that are so far-fetched, that are so... never will happen, never happen, never will happen. Except the fact that we do think of it is the reason to discuss it. Okay, very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. And we think of it, and we discuss it, and he's saying it's critical because this affects the world. How is this affecting the world? How is this changing the world? I'm discussing something that never happened, never will happen. That's what he's, that's what he's going to explain now. The question discussed there is whether a firstborn animal can be considered to have directly, quote, opened the wound and hence be sanctified. In either of two hypothetical cases, according to Rashi, it is a question of what happens if a person assisted in the birth entirely wraps up the animal as born. According to Rabbeinu Kav, the question involves a multiple birth, with the cow being born together with the first born bull, 
and wrapping itself completely around it, something extremely unlikely to ever occur. Nonetheless, all these detailed queries were given to Moses and Simon. For the extension of the supreme wisdom that is vested in the laws of the Torah is infinite. So this is the crux. This is what he's saying. The supernal wisdom is divine. Hashem's infinite self is revealed in His supernal wisdom. The supernal wisdom is a vessel for the infinite. So therefore, since God is infinite, and the supernal wisdom is a vessel for the infinite, so God's mind is infinite, therefore, you have infinite possibilities. That's why there are so many more possibilities than actual practical scenarios. We live in a very narrow world. Our whole frame of reference is so tiny and so narrow. But Hashem's mind and the infinite self, His infinite light, His infinite self, which is revealed in His mind, there's infinite possibilities, infinite scenarios, infinite, even though practically it will never pan out, it will never practically manifest itself practically, but you have all these different scenarios. Hashem is thinking about all these different cases and scenarios and would-bes and could-bes and should-be and possibilities and all these nuances, all these details. That's why the Torah discusses all these, these, um, these details. Because we're studying the supernal mind, we're studying Hashem, who's infinite, Hashem's mind. And like you say, if we think about it, that's why we can think about all these scenarios, even though practically there's no practical application. What's interesting, in the universities, the government spends a lot of money. It's theoretical science. But there they do it because out of all the theoretical science, there'll be a breakthrough, something practical, become a, a practical, even though we don't see it now. But eventually, out of all these theoretical science, we have all the breakthroughs that we have today. The whole modern life that we have today is all because it started out as theoretical science. And then it was somehow turned into the laser and into the, to everything that we have today. So they're ready to spend and ready to pay people to dedicate their whole life just thinking and mapping out different theories and concepts that are so far-fetched because out of all of this they're hoping that something practical will learn something practical but that's not what he's explaining here here he's talking about something that's theoretical and will remain theoretical never happened and never will happen it's not that I'm hoping maybe out of this something practical will come out no I'm talking about scenarios that never happened, could never happen, will never happen. And I'm engaged in it, full-fledged, totally engaged. Because this is divine, and God is infinite. So the possibilities and the scenarios and the laws and the details and nuances are also infinite. There's no limit. There's so many different possibilities, this way, that way, the other way. And it's all relevant and impactful. That, that we're going to get to, how it's impacted. Every particular of the laws that they drawn from the Supreme Wisdom, which founded the daughter and is clothed in it. Hachma, the father, founded Mahfud, the daughter. Mahfud is the mouth, which we call the oral Torah. Hachma then is clothed laws of the oral Torah, if they are to be found in their source, and Mahfud are the seeders. So Chachma, the wisdom, the supernal wisdom, where does the supernal wisdom express itself? Where is it found? The father gives birth to the daughter. We know there's a special 
daughter-father relationship. The father gives birth to the daughter. Chachma expresses itself in Malchut. Just like you have, you have, you have like the light of the sun, right? When the light of the sun travels through space, space is dark. Why is space dark? What happened to the light? It's only when the light hits this world that suddenly you see the light bounces off this world and there's an atmosphere and there's suddenly you see the effect of the light otherwise the light is silent you don't see its effect so Chachma has to reach all the way to Malchus when Chachma reaches Malchus which is the end like the earth which is the oral Torah and in the halacha, and in the discussion of the halacha, now the wisdom, the supernal wisdom, and an infinite brilliance, and an infinite, now I see the light. Now it comes out. It's the daughter that brings out the father. I see the father, the connection, that the beginning and the end are connected. So from Chachma, and only in the oral Torah, there you see the infinity Hashem's infinite, how, Hashem, how the Torah is infinite, how God's mind is infinite. That, that you think of all these different scenarios and all these different possibilities that are infinite. Although it's, it will never manifest itself practically. But this is where you see the Chachma. This is where the Chachma shines. This is where the Chachma sparkles. This is where you see the Chachma emerge in the daughter, in the oral Torah. And from Malchut, the Chachma is drawn and invested in Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya. And from the Oral Torah comes down to different worlds, which is the Talmud, and the Mishnah, and the written Torah, and Allah. Okay. So, okay, so now, the next part, he's going to lead, he's going to explain now how studying the infinite wisdom, and studying these, all these infinite possibilities and scenarios, how it practically impacts, changes the world, clarifies this world, makes this world a better place. That's the connection that he's going to explain next week. To be continued.